Hey folks, welcome back to the My Technicians podcast. On today's episode, we speak with John Foker, the principal engineer and head of cyber investigations at Trellix, the new cybersecurity brand that formed earlier this year after the merger between McAfee Enterprise and FireEye. John gives us an inside look at the modern cybersecurity threats facing organizations today, how the industry is changing, as well as what we should all be looking out for in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. A big shout out again to John for hopping on a Zoom call to discuss these issues after some technical issues during an interview at RSA conference. Before we get to John, here's a quick reminder to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google, Google, and Spotify to hear weekly interviews with IT experts that can help you make the right decisions for your organization. And now here's John. So, you know, as, as a, you know, cybersecurity expert in the field who's, you know, helping organizations, you know, respond to a lot of these attacks, um, what are you, what are you seeing and how are you seeing, um, you know, the situation change over the last few years? Well, that's a great question. Um, we see, we see uh, definitely, well, it's a hot topic and everybody mentions it, it's ransomware. And oh. we do see that at the, uh, the attacks are becoming more and more severe. Obviously, threat, threat actors are trying to uh, devise new ways of, uh, of, of penetrating networks and uh, adding an extra leverage to the extortion schemes. Uh, things we've noticed as well is that the, uh, the mean time between a vulnerability, for instance, that gets disclosed, it could be a Microsoft vulnerability or an Edge device or whatever, and the, uh, the time that actually a threat actor is actively exploiting it to their good to their in their benefit that time has shortened significantly um and uh lastly we saw some of the uh pretty sophisticated uh supply chain attacks like we saw in uh, solar winds right and do you anticipate you know seeing a lot more of those kind of attacks that leverage the the it supply chain i mean we kind of we I mean we also saw um you know kaseya um, then we saw, you know, a lot of these, um, you know, uh, really scary vulnerabilities like, like log4j, um, you know, obviously that, that takes, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the work, um, you know, that, that handles a lot of the work that these cyber criminals, you know, have historically had to do. And then kind of, you know, this guy, it's a, obviously it makes their, their job, uh, easier, you know, uh, going this route. Totally yes. If you look at the um, the, the supply chain route, it's a, it's an uh, amplification of their efforts. So with uh, an X amount of effort, they can well basically gain a, a greater result. Uh, funny you mentioned Kaseya because uh, that particular threat group was actually already uh, very interested in um, in attacking um, uh, uh, MSPs, third-party suppliers, and software right. delivery uh, software companies like. Kaseya-like companies, but um, oh, definitely this space. And, I, and that also is something that we need to prepare for for the future. It's, it's not only these companies that can be breached where they have an IT infrastructure or, or there's managed service providers that can be hacked, but where I see a real challenge lying for the future, and it's, it's funny because I'm at a conference right now that's centered around new technologies and uh, how people are embracing a lot of these, these like web 3.0 and all these things. And they're all developers and they're all using different development and uh, different stacks of programming languages and all these things. However, um, the, uh, it, there's a large community 
contribution to these languages. So like if you look at the Python, adding libraries to stuff. But one thing that really kind of scares me, and we saw it with log4j, is how much actually organizations are dependent on a lot of open source repos and how little of uh, integrity checks are there or, or uh, any hardening or vulnerability checks. So I think that's something we're going to see in the in the near future or in the in the for future as well. And then we need we need to find a way around like how can even if people contribute open source that they can make sure that what they contribute is solid and there's less uh, vulnerabilities. Right. Yeah, and I remember that's something you mentioned at RSA that um, you know compromising a single uh, you know uh, open source contributor uh, is you know a really scary idea. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And it's like. Well, I don't know if you've done any coding and I've done some coding in the past and I know all coders are lazy. Uh, well, that's right. a stereotype by the way, but um, <laughs> I can understand like, well, if they contribute to a project, they're, they're more e eager into the contribution and they're not always thinking about like, okay, what's the Im impact of my contribution in the larger right. scale? And it might actually be that it's not relevant at the moment in time that they submit their contribution, but it might actually be very relevant later on. and. If they do not take the, the right safety precautions, they can actually be a target of an attack, which we have seen in the past. And uh, by using their accounts to submit certain codes and that's being uh, 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 processed and accepted automatically, that's a very, very dangerous space to be in because uh, right. that can open up a, a, a can of worms. Right. Um, so are we seeing uh, uh, ransomware actors um... You know, like like Conti and and Revil. So by the way, is it is it Revil or Evil? How do you, how do people say it? Yeah, I, I call it. Yeah, a lot of that. that that's funny that you say that because I I kind of say Revil, uh, just yeah. because they capitalize the R and the E, and it's uh, right. it's usually based like on Resident Evil. So I, that's why I call it Revil. But other people call it Revel or Revil. So yeah, anything flies. At a certain <laughs> moment, they're also called. So no Kibi, just because of an extension. So right. yeah, that's even a name nomenclature that we actually use within the company. So no Kibi, uh, evil. Interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> good to know. Um, so are, are we seeing these guys? So I think we're, are we? Correct me if I'm wrong. Are we seeing a shift away from just you know the standard ransomware delivery method of you know uh, phishing and you know clicking you know uh, opening attachments and clicking on links and things like that to leveraging these these um, these vulnerabilities and you know finding ways to deploy ransomware in a little bit more sophisticated ways that um, you know we haven't you know historically been prepared to protect against. Um, yes, no. Phishing still remains a very very large factor of intrusion, uh, and with phishing, you see as the added bonus with a lot of these attacks, they will install commodity malware, which would gather credentials. And then you have like credentials being used to access a victim's network. Uh, if you read the latest uh, uh, Verizon data breach report, that's uh, credentials being used to access a, a, a network as the number one entry factor, the largest right. one. So that can be tied into info stealers and, and logs that are stolen and data breaches and all that stuff. But most definitely, Having um, uh, a very fresh vulnerability that can give you access to a network system 
And especially if it's like an edge device, like a VPN router or a firewall, which by definition probably runs on a higher privilege or it's, it's, it's probably configured by a, an account that has higher privileges, going after a device like that and finding a vulnerability and exploiting that vulnerability will give you a head start. Probably more of a head start than you would have if you uh, uh, just have an end user. So it is very interesting. Um, actually, we, we, we did an extensive blog on Conti where we uh, examined all the, uh, the chat logs or the, uh, the Jabber chats that were leaked. And one of the things that stood out is that they went a pretty long way to get a, uh, a, a firewall appliance from, uh, from a company shipped all the way to Russia. And they went all the way through Europe to uh, Ukraine and and just for the purpose to figure out what any of the, uh, if there was any vulnerabilities or just to try to figure out and hack into that system. Oh, wow. so we, we do see, the, yeah, that the ransomware space, and, and obviously they have a lot of money. They have a lot of cash to yes. burn. And, and they are like, they're the new player on the vulnerability market. So if, if somebody has a local privilege escalation vulnerability or even a remote execution vulnerability, they could enter that space because they have a lot of cash, which, which in the past would not be able, well, was not really accessible to them. Was not really accessible to these uh, these type of criminals, but now since they've done some big game hunting and they literally have millions of dollars, they come in that realm uh, which predominantly used to be dominated by nation state actors, and they can actually invest either time and money into research, or they can actually purchase it from a third party. Right. And this is something else we talked about at RSA, but um, I mean, there's there's a clear uh, connection between these ransomware groups like Conti and re-evil um, with uh, nation states, um, you know, primarily Russia. Um, and are we seeing um, these, these guys adopt some, you know, sophisticated, sophisticated tools and techniques that we see from nation state attacks? Uh, yeah, that's hard to tell. Uh, what is happening is that, and we wrote, we actually uh, published a report together with CSIS where we were actually highlight that there is there's a merge going on between cyber criminal behavior and nation state actors. And uh, and the report, the ink of the ink of the report wasn't even dry. And then the Conti leaks came out and we went through those leaks and we saw that there was a clear relationship. Um, it's hard to tell in which level they actually uh, share their knowledge and to what degree they're intertwined. However, given the current climate where we oppose a lot of sanctions, which, which is good inevitably, and a lot of restrictions on Russia, we kind of push the cyber criminals that already had ties with the Russian government into the same corner. So uh, cross training of tactics and techniques is something that we can expect. And, um, and, and it would be very um, interesting to see if any tactics will be deployed. Whereas predominantly, if you look at the, uh, uh, the APT29 realm for the SDR, they're very slow and under the radar. They take their time to, uh, and they're very sophisticated. They go a, lo a long way to penetrate their, uh, their victims versus if you compare that to APT28, uh, uh, which is a little bit more crude. And also like ransomware actors, uh, don't forget their ability to penetrate a network and to go from one single user to domain admin, that full compromise, in mm. the shortest amount of time, that's something they've been training for for years. And that right. has nothing to do with intelligence gathering, but if, if you as a, let's say, if you as a foreign actor wanna deploy 
a more disruptive way of spreading ransomware, for instance, they can actually learn from the cyber criminal actors, from the ransomware actors, if you want to deploy a wiper across the network, because they've honed their skills in penetrating a network from A to Z in the shortest amount of time in the last years anyways. Right. So, so speaking of wipers and, and ransomware in Russia, um, obviously, uh, and you've been, you know, on, on the on the front lines in this. Uh, what, so, what can we take away from this from the cyber attacks we're seeing against Ukraine, and how can we prepare the public and pri private sector, you know, in, in the U.S. and, and elsewhere um, for some, you know, potential uh, spillover as things uh, as things possibly escalate? That's a, an excellent question. So. Uh, first of all, we published an extensive report on everything we saw happening in Ukraine. Um, Trellix, I'm very fortunate that, we, that I work at a company, Trellix, that has a very clear mission uh, and that we protect our customers. So very early on, we worked together with our partner, Mandiant, to get essential appliances and tools and software deployed within Ukraine to protect those government entities. So in the last, uh, the conflict now, uh, I think, passed 110 days. And uh, during RSA, we published a report with, with um, not everything, but quite a few things that we've seen. And as much as people say, like, well, there's not, uh, they're seeing the largest impactful attacks, we can actually state that, like, on an ongoing basis, there is constantly attacks going on. So that's the stuff we see. And for anyone else in the organization, they might think, like, well, Ukraine, Russia, that's, that's far from where I stand right now. But... Make no mistake, if you have an organization and, you, and within your risk modeling, you have an APT actor as a potential threat to your organization, you should take very close notice of what is going on right now. Because honestly, from a threat intelligence perspective, I think we're at a very pivotal moment because it's the first time where we see a near peer nation of, with, with cyber capability launching their cyber capability and being followed up with a kinetic event. So this right. is stuff that we, History is being written as we speak. So from the stuff we saw, we saw a combination of sophisticated and less sophisticated attacks, all the way to um, even attacks that were actually quite old that we have seen, uh, and actually our industry peers have written about uh, one or two years ago, we've seen those very similar, those same types of malware being deployed in an attack most recently. So th there's all these different hypotheses we have running. But for a company, I think, um, Things to look at that are really solid is the executive order from President Biden. Things yeah. that they say like, okay, we, we need to invest in EDR, XDR strategy that you detect the behavior instead of just the, uh, the, uh, the malicious code. Because there's a lot of things that these actors do that is they're using non-malicious tools, but they do it for a malicious intent. And as an organization, you need to be able to detect this. And another thing is multi-factor authentication. That is... I think that could be like a cornerstone in every organization. I realize it's not easy to deploy, but it, these are things that can actually make a difference. And a lot of companies need to take note because uh, a spillover can only go so far, but if you're required to do, you have some very good segmentation of your network, some multi-factor authentication in place, you might be attacked, but the, the impact of the, of the attack can be limited just because you've zoned it off. Mm. Right. Um. So, how do how do you think that that you know the the events in, in you know uh, Ukraine, um, the the rapid increase in ransomware, and just the you know increasing sophistication in cyber attacks, 
Now, how do you, how do you think that's impacting the way uh, cybersecurity providers, uh, you know, deploy their 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 software and their business model? And and same thing at, at Trellix. You know, how how is it impacting the cybersecurity industry? Oh, it's it's um, for any competent cybersecurity provider, this is definitely impacting the industry. Um, our core business is to protect our customers and any organization against threats. So we need to understand the threat and we need to be agile enough to help with the threat. At the same time, we are give help for the organizations to counter those threats. At the same time, we need to realize that um, um, a lot of organizations have a multitude of solutions and those solutions don't always talk to each other. And mm -hmm. they might have an alert A and, and, and that may have to re-correlate it in a different system. So for, with Trellix, what I'm actually very, very uh, um, happy about and I'm, I'm very uh, enthusiastic is that we have a very broad portfolio that from email gateway all the way up to like your EDR or your sandboxing technology, we have a, a whole portfolio of products that actually communicate to each other. And I think as a security industry, even though we can be competitors, we must strive to have that like a way to integrate with each other because in the end, what we're all trying to do is protect people. And, yeah. uh, and that's something that I, I think is very powerful of Trellix is that we, we embrace that uh, XDR, the XDR story and the way we approach it, it's not one product. No, it's multiple products that can do extended detection and response and they all communicate. Because in the end of the day, when a breach happens or an attack happens, the user or the customer, they want to have a story. They want to know what went on in their network. The last thing they want to do is ease all those parts of the puzzle together from multiple systems, multiple screens, and that just costs time. And if we need to respond, and in and, and the, and the, and the same line, there is a, a, a gigantic shortage of personnel to yeah. follow up on alerts. And mind you, if you're behind, if I, I've been in the SOC multiple times, I talked to our customers and they said like, well, one response, one alert or one incident might generate hundreds of alerts and we have to correlate duplicate and do all these efforts well if the tools are not talking to each other in a proper way how do you expect to deduplicate and to correlate in a nice fashion that you presented to the end user in a concise story let alone if you want to apply any machine learning to this so that's that's something that i'm really i think the industry needs to uh, um, uh, get together and the way we do it with intralix as well and we need to empower companies to help them out with the security issue not to scare them, but to take them by the hand and, and, and make sure that we provide the security that they need in order for that companies to grow. All right. I think, um, and I think a lot of this is kind of spurred by the government and, and CISA, um, but I think there's been a lot more, um, you know, willingness to share information about, about certain threats in the industry and just among uh, industry in general, general in, in the U.S. and, and abroad. And I think that's, uh, I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, did, you know, do you think I'm right? Do you think, you know, we are sharing information, uh, you know, a lot more than, than we, we were before? We are definitely sharing more information than we were before. That's, uh, that's something that I'm very happy about. Um, can we improve? Yes. Yeah. And the methodology I will share uh, be improved that we can actually adequately respond in near real time? Most definitely. There's always room for improvement, but... Uh, Often I say you have to crawl before you can walk and run and then dance on high heels. So yeah, you, um, we, we need to be mindful and it's, uh, 
and I, I really admire CISA for taking a lead and taking charge in this. Actually, well, I'm a European citizen and I, I sometimes I look at the US and I, I mention it to a lot of our peers and a lot of people in, in, in the European continent as well. And it's like, well, yeah. take a look at how they tackle the problem. It is very open in sharing. It's, it's, it's uncovering the threat. It is, and, but not scaring people as much, but explaining mm. how they operate and giving them some really, really good guidelines on how to protect yourself. So I am all for sharing threat intelligence because it needs to land in the right place. Right. I think one of the best things that CISA does is uh, they maintain that really great catalog of known exploited vulnerabilities. And every day they're posting like 10 year old vulnerabilities that are being actively exploited, which I think, uh, you know, paints a pretty good picture about, about the, you know, cybersecurity climate right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been looking at that and I do, I, I think it's um, not to be, I only point of critique is that um, the vulnerability it's, it's, it's a list. But um, they've been going on for this effort and I admire it, but the list is pretty extensive if you've seen it. It's like yeah. 777 or 700 yeah. plus the last time I looked at So for an organization, where do you start when right. you see that list? And then, and, for, uh, for, and, and then threat intelligence comes in play as well, because you need to realize, okay, what our organization and I, am I in? Who would be my most likely threat actor? What appliances do I have? And how do these known exploited vulnerabilities apply to my organization? Right. So if I have an appliance, which one of these vulnerabilities is applicable to, yes, it's a no-brainer. You need to update, patch, or whatever. But it's equally, for a prioritization, it's good to understand. It's like, okay, was this vulnerability exploited by a certain nation-state actor? Right. Is, right. is it already weaponized a tool? All these things. So I, I think, actually, it's a really great start. But we can take it more granular and we can actually uh, and maybe that's something that the security industry needs to take up take upon because we know our customers. Yeah, we try to that's what we do actually in my team. We try to articulate, well, actually, you're in industry X, Y or Z, this vertical, you're in this geo and you have an interest of or in this geo we see or in your vertical, we see a lot of APT related attacks maybe it's actually good that you take a look at these vulnerabilities because these APT groups are actively using these mm -hmm. vulnerabilities. And you come to that advice. So that's something I think that we as an industry can, uh, can definitely improve, but I am absolutely on agreeing with you that it's, it's good to have that definite list, but yeah. that's, uh, that's, that's already a great start. And, and a lot of them are, are, you know, several years old. I think there's some that are more than 10 years old. So I think, um, you know, yeah, I, th I think you make a good point that there needs to be more context around how these vulnerabilities are being leveraged. But uh, you know, does it just paint a picture, paint a picture for organizations that hey, like update, <laughs> update your stuff. Like you don't go, don't go ten years without, without you know patching your stuff, especially you know for these, these you know critical vulnerabilities that are being leveraged. Um. You're absolutely right. And uh, more often we see that the older vulnerabilities that are leveraged are also baked into uh, multiple uh, 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 toolkits, multiple attack toolkits like Cobalt Strike and Interpreter. And uh, that makes it even easier for a threat actor. But yeah, it's, 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 um, it will be surprising how many times you will see that some organization might have a server and they say like, well, this is actually a critical machine. We cannot turn it off. And, uh, and to your surprise, it actually runs Windows XP. And yeah. so I, I can also realize on the other side, on the, 
it's, it's a two side, the medallion has two sides, right? It's like at, the, at face value, you look at the, uh, the vulnerabilities and you're like, well, how could everyone, anyone have a vulnerability that they're actually vulnerable to a vulnerability from 2017? Well, I can also see from the reality is that if somebody, for instance, has a manufacturing machine that they cannot turn off, that runs mm. on Windows XP, well, chances are <clears throat> that machine is going to be pretty vulnerable. Yeah. But um, to to your point or, or in general, having knowledge about the fact that you're running something from 2017 and that it might be vulnerable and having the fact that you know about it, that can actually open up an avenue that you can do something about it. And if right. you didn't know about that vulnerability from 2017, well, then you never knew what hit you. But if you know about it, you can you can kind of set up a mitigation. Right. Um, this, so this is something I noticed at, at RSA, you know, in meeting with a bunch of folks. Um, the cybersecurity industry is, is super competitive, and there's a lot of players, um, and you know, and a ton of startups. And and I'm sure you're you've seen these headlines as well. Um, that there have been you know uh, several rounds of layoffs over the last uh, maybe couple weeks, couple months. Um, so we you know is is the cybersecurity market you know oversaturated uh, and in you know are we going to see consolidation or you know where do we go from here? Well, yeah. If I I tried to look at the problem that we're trying to solve as an industry, regardless of all the many companies, and the problem is so large and so huge that we need all the help we can get. Right. Um, and, and, and that to me gives me a lot of faith because uh, like our CEO, Brian, said in, the, in his speech as well, in his keynote speech, it's, it's I think being in cybersecurity and especially, I'm, I'm fortunate I'm in a role that I do, I, I feel that I do soulful work. I really protect customers. I chase down bad guys. I help uh, government entities try to get them behind bars and solve the problem. So that's that for me. It's 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 the place where I would like to be. I feel every day I wake up, I feel satisfied, and I can change the world uh, or do my part to change the world. Because I don't, by any means, I'm not Desmond Tutu or whatever. But uh, uh, I feel I make a difference, and I can understand a lot of times with the tech industry being so cutthroat, and in the the recent years, and actually with COVID as well, that people reevaluate what they want from life and the. That, that there's going to be uh, uh, people resigning or there's layoffs and cuts, that, mm -hmm. that's going to be inevitable. Uh, I really hope that those individuals that got laid off in the tech industry could actually come to the cybersecurity industry, regardless of what training they have, and, and, and just use their powers for good, all their tech talent. And at the same time, yeah, there's a ton of startups, there's a ton of companies, and it's a, it's a, there's a lot of space. But... Um, I look at there's a multitude of problems we're trying to solve. A lot of the larger plays when it comes to cybersecurity don't always have the agility to move on mm -hmm. the spot. And did uh, you have a startup market, I think is great because they can really focus on a, a narrow swim lane to solve one particular problem. And they can, they can really harness and focus all their efforts on solving that problem. And, and might we that they're actually going to be acquired by a larger company to create a, an addition to the portfolio that that company already has. Right. Um, and uh, last question. Um, you know, what are some attacks that organizations should be preparing for that, you know, we haven't quite, um, you know, heard about yet? The stuff that organizations should be preparing for what we not yet heard about yet. I mean, 
Yes. Or, or what's not getting a lot of attention that, that you know, we should be looking at? Yeah, that comes back to my, my previous point where I say like the supply chain and not necessarily your direct suppliers when it, that's right. pretty obvious because you, you're, you're using in a, a software program uh, to manage your CRM or whatever, but going one level deeper, looking at uh, code repositories and how we approve, uh, how we look at uh, applications that we, uh, how they're updated and if they're trusted or not within a network. And that goes beyond the zero trust that you see on RSA where it's predominantly network-based access, but I go like, well, you need to go down to an app level uh, or even lower. But most definitely one of the things that I'm, um, I think we need to we need to crack is that the the supply chain from the software supply chain and the code-based supply chain, because that could be uh, that could be a big game changer, especially when you look at the uh, the technologies that they're leveraging when it comes to blockchain technology. And I, I'm not a big fan of, of of saying this, but there's a lot of development taking place, and uh, I would hate to see that we we build a world based on technology that's vulnerable to a certain attack when it comes to uh, poisoning a code repository or whatever, and actually accessing or giving the, uh, the attacker all the tools they need to uh, commit their crime, that to me is a, is a worrisome thought. If we put so much effort in developing something new, we should also at the same time put a lot of effort in making sure that nobody else can come in and break down the house. Very good. Uh, John, thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time. Um, uh, and again, yeah, you know, apologies for what happened at RSA, but I appreciate you coming on today.